0: Glad to have you. To turn up the deed anyway. I can tell you have a tall pastor. This is uh, uh, th- this is interesting. Um, you know, I I, uh, I learned something this morning when we sang "Standing on the Promises," a song I've sung for many many years. Um, there is a verse in your hymn book that I have never sung before. I don't know if you realize that or not, but I think it's verse 3, is a brand new verse for me. Neither my wife or I, we, we, neither of us think we've ever sung that before. So many of the, the songs that we sing, the authors have many verses. And the uh, when they put the hymn books together, they are selective. And they have kind of fallen into a groove where they select Uh, certain verses, we get used to certain verses, but your your hymn book has a... uh, I'm sure it's original to the author, uh, but as interesting, it has a a verse that I've never sung before. So take your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at what I've entitled this morning the fullness of time, and that phrase is taken right out of verse 4. We... um, When we think about salvation, uh, we tend, as just being human, we want to try to contribute something ourselves. In fact, uh, if you were to survey religions from A to Z, uh, virtually all religions uh, try to have the individual contribute to their own salvation. They try to get um, some some all of it everything everything you do, everything you are contributes to salvation and one of the things that we understand about biblical Christianity and how the Bible describes salvation is that we contribute nothing we we come uh, in, in in a great deficit of sin and we are unable to. Uh, contribute anything to the cause. And the the verses before us, our text is verse 4 and 5, uh, will, will help us to understand that salvation here is all of God. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the, the first seven verses here in Galatians chapter 4. Understand that Galatians is designed to help us understand the relationship between the Old Testament law and grace which is in Jesus Christ. And, and so Galatians is trying to help us walk through that, uh, that uh, uh, change from the old dispensation to the new dispensation of grace. And in doing that, Paul comes in, in chapter four, and he gives us an illustration of adoption and he's using a, a we'll talk about this in just a few moments towards the end of the sermon but but he's giving us a, a a Roman understanding of what adoption is but in the middle of this this teaching of law grace and of understanding adoption from a Roman perspective he gives us a This wonderful expression in verses 4 and 5, which is our text this morning, this wonderful expression of the redemption that Jesus Christ gives us. So I'm going to begin now in chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Follow along as I read down through verse 7. Galatians 4, verse 1. And now I say that the heir as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who... ...who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Father, we ask your hand of blessing as we open your word today. We thank you for uh, the blessings of salvation in Christ... And we thank you, Father, for what you have done in making us a son and therefore an heir. And we'll rejoice in what you do in and through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to think this morning as we look through these uh, verses, verses four and five in particular, I want us to understand that first of all, there is a redemption that God planned a redemption that God planned. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time. Now, I want to make two observations that our English text doesn't really clarify that the, the, the Greek text makes very clear. The first is that the word time has a definite article in front of it. Now it wouldn't make sense really to say that in English, but it makes a difference when we are thinking theologically about what of what um, uh, Paul is Paul is instructing. So it is it is the time in other words, it's a specific time. The second thing I want to note is there are two primary words in Greek that are translated time. One is the idea of opportunity or or circumstances, or of, of, of events coming together. That's not the word that's used here. The word here that's used here is the word we get in English, we get the word chronology from. And it has to do with the, with the setting of time, of, of an exact moment, of, of the clock as it ticks around. Some of you today um, set an alarm clock so that you wouldn't oversleep. It's the idea of that setting of the alarm clock when the moment would go off. And so in in verse 4, when Paul talks about the fullness of the time, he's thinking about God arranging circumstances so that at a precise moment in history, the alarm clock would go off. Now, my, my wife and I are generally, we, we get up so early these days, we, we, we very typically, unless there's a, um, you know, an, a, a doctor's appointment that's early in the morning or I'm going to have, I think, three days this next semester that I'm going to have a 7 a.m. class, I'll have to set an alarm. You, know, you try 7 a.m. classes for a while. to see, see You don't have to just show up, but you have to be teaching at 7 a.m. Most times we don't have to set an alarm anymore because we're up, we're up so early. Understand when the fullness of the time was happening. So what kind of, of fullness is God talking about? And what we are looking at here in Galatians four, 4 is God's unseen hand of providence. God is working in and through circumstances to bring about exactly what he wants to occur. And so I want to look, there's really three kinds of fullnesses that I want to just examine very briefly today. The first is what I would call historical fullness. There is a historical fullness. And just for example, we, we have in, in the circumstances that surround the life, the birth, the, the death of Christ and the, and the advent of the church and all that's part of, of, of understanding what's going on in, in the New Testament. We have a Roman Empire that has set the stage and allowed for the, the, the birth of the gospel and of the church in an unusual way. For example, the roads. Um, the, the, the Romans prepared... The the cultural circumstances, so that the gospel could travel easily far distances. The language was unified when when um, uh, when Alexander conquered as as the Greeks and and unified the, the 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 really the known world with one language, and that includes Asia and Africa and Europe. We understand that in in the gospel story in, in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 that a decree comes out from Caesar Augustus. Well, that decree was perhaps as many as 11 years earlier than the birth of Christ. There was no internet. There is no Twitter. There's no Facebook. How does... How does God orchestrate historically to have the events of the gospel occur when he wants it to occur? occur? It is the historical fullness. When the fullness of the time came. A second kind of fullness is what I would call theological fullness. And understand that there is a circumstance in which in which the the gospel is given birth, Israel is in the midst of a, of a depth of sin. the The northern tribes have been gone for seven hundred years. Just think of that seven hundred years. The, the The northern tribes have, have have been gone, and 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 Judah, after seventy years in captivity, have come back. And there are now four hundred years of silence. God has not spoken to Israel. God has not spoken through a prophet for four hundred years. I mean, just imagine, imagine the. I mean, if you four hundred years back in our history takes us back to the Pilgrims. I mean, there is a bit of, there has been nothing from god for 400 years there is political corruption there's a there's a man named Herod ruling in Israel who is not even jewish there is there is a, a religious corruption the pharisees who are really the more religiously conservative are such are such legalists that they can't see and they can't see the gospel from the end, the end of their own noses. Uh, the Sadducees who are another major political, religious political party, are so liberal, they don't even think there's such a thing as an angel. They, 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 have, they, are, they are Bible deniers. understand that the theological fullness is darkness and rejection of God, and rejection of what God would want. But there's not only historical fullness and theological fullness, but there is also prophetic fullness. We understand the the genealogies of of both Matthew and David. We understand that, um, rather, Matthew and Luke, where where in these genealogies, God has prepared through these people all the way from Abraham and one and David and both of them for for our Lord's birth. Someone has counted 332 prophecies that are fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. I think that they could have figured very closely the exact year of the birth of Christ if you just understand Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks of Daniel in their proper context. And so I don't think it's an accident that when when Christ is brought into the the temple to be circumcised, and, and you have Anna and you have Simeon who are there Essentially, waiting for the Messiah. I think it would have been possible to actually figure out when the Messiah—a certain range of years—when the when the Messiah had to be in the temple to be circumcised. Understand that there there were prophecies of 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 the Messiah's family, whether it is from Judah or whether it is from David, the place of his birth, Bethlehem of Ephrata in in. In, uh, in Micah 5.2 and understand that God is bringing together all of the circumstances whether it's theological or whether it's political or whether it is it is prophetic. God brought together all of the circumstances so that in the fullness of the time that Christ would come at the exact moment, at the exact phasing, uh, at the exact point of history in which God wanted it to occur. Just think of the circumstances that have to happen immediately before the birth of Christ. Uh, you, wonder, you, you remember back in the Gospels of the story of John the Baptist. And of, of, of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, which would have been known far and wide how, how his parents, great of age, could have produced a child. And understand that, that, that John the Baptist being born probably about six months before Christ was born, not only is he related uh, family But he is the precursor, and certainly there needed to be the forerunner prior to the Messiah coming. When the fullness of time was come, it was in the providential hand and direction of God that Jesus was born when he was born. Not only the redemption that God planned, but I want you to see, secondly, in verse 4, the redemption that God provided. The redemption that God provided. Verse 4 says that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, I want you to see that there is a, there is a very specific Um, intention in the phrasing here first of all understanding that he is God sent he is in verse 4 God sent forth his son that certainly is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ that is a statement of of his being the pre-existent one It is a statement of the eternal relationship of God the Father to God the Son. God the Father sent His Son. That that eternal relationship is demonstrated. The deity of Christ is demonstrated in that phrasing. But not only was He God sent, but we read in verse 4 that he is also born of a woman. That certainly describes his humanity. Where the first phrase describes his deity, this phrase describes his humanity. And we understand that Jesus Christ is not only fully God, but he is also fully man. He he has a hu- human nature And as well, a a, uh, a divine nature. Both of them, we must understand, combine into making one person Jesus Christ. God sent, woman made. And then we have, interestingly, born under the law. Now, this strikes at the heart of what the book of Galatians is all about. Jesus Christ is born under law, and he lives his entire life under the, the law of Moses. Now, we understand in the, in the giving of the law that the law never brought life. The law could only bring sin. It could only bring a recognition of our sinfulness, Keeping the law doesn't make one righteous. Keeping the law did not make Christ righteous. Understand that keeping the law, Christ being born under the law, is an important and critical aspect of understanding that as Jesus Christ is born under the law, he lived his entire life In obedience to the law, where where no man could keep the law, Jesus Christ being the Son of God, being deity, could, and understand that, that not one jot or tittle passed away until the law was fulfilled. Jesus Christ accomplished everything that the law asked. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And in in providing Jesus Christ, who is the answer to the question of can the law be perfected and and kept perfectly, only the perfect man, the perfect God-man, could keep the law. And so Jesus Christ is singularly qualified because he was born under the law and kept the law. The redemption that God provided is only through Jesus Christ. Gee, this man who, who is the, the eternal creator, the, the eternal Son of God. Comes into humanity, is born of a woman, and being born under the law, keeps the law perfectly, qualifying himself to be that sacrifice. Thirdly, in verse 5, I want us to see the redemption that God purchased. The redemption that God purchased. Verse 5 says, to redeem those. Who were under the law. So Jesus Christ is born under the law, and he has come to redeem those who were under the law. Now, the standard of being a redeemer is one that is well known throughout the scriptures. So it is pictured in the Old Testament. I think it begins even as Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve falling into sin and the coats of of clothing that God provides for uh, for their uh, their clothing. Those coats of skin certainly demonstrate that there was a price for sin. And understand that, that Throughout the 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 storyline of the old testament, there is a there is a sense of understanding of preparing for that sacrifice. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham goes to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and and offers his son, his only son, Isaac, as a as a sacrifice in obedience. And how God has provided that that lamb, that that ram in the thicket to be the substitute for uh, for uh, Isaac. In Genesis chapter four, we have Abel's sacrifices that were accepted; his sacrifices accepted where Cain's were not. And there is throughout the Old Testament this picture of 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 the sacrifices that were. That were accepted. Exodus chapter 15 talks about the Passover lamb, which provides the basis of the Old Testament sacrificial system. God is providing in Jesus Christ, He is that Passover lamb, 2 Corinthians tells us. And all of that was moving towards the day of atonement. And the Old Testament sacrificial system is is designed to give us a picture of what is actually accomplished in Christ on the cross. To redeem those that were under the law. Not only is it pictured in the Old Testament, Testament, but it's personified in Christ himself. I find it interesting that when we talk about why did Christ come, we often don't listen to Christ's own words when he said why he came. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Christ came. Christ came for the purpose of redeeming not only Israel, but all mankind. Revelation 5 and verse 9, For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. What is it that Christ wanted to accomplish? In Jesus Christ, we find the focus of what redemption is all about. It is focused into the person of Jesus Christ. And then we understand that there is a price to be paid. There is a purchase price. Keep your finger here in Galatians, but turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. verse 18 I'm going to skip into the middle of a sentence 1 Peter 1 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers now look at verse 19 but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot without blemish and without spot goes back to the Passover lamb that's the terminology of, of of, all the way back to Exodus chapter 15 what, it, what was the price of our redemption it was the, the, the sacrifice of the lamb and of his giving the giving of his blood this God man this man who was The Son of God from eternity past, God himself, who became man so that he might shed his blood, his precious blood, and provide a sacrifice for sin. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, we read, "...who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present age." Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. I'm not going to take the time this morning to develop the picture that is found in the New Testament concerning the word redemption. I'll just summarize it here for you briefly. There are three different words... Greek words that are translated redemption in our English Bibles and they provide for us a picture of what redemption is all about and and the imagery is that of a slave market of sin The first word is is used means to purchase in the slave market. God comes into, in this imagery of redemption that is found in the New Testament, God comes into the slave market of sin and purchases us with his own blood and, and, and buys us in the slave market of sin. The second word is the idea of purchasing out of the slave market. In fact, that is the word that is used in Galatians chapter 4. When we read in verse 5, to redeem those who were born under the law. The idea here is, with the second term, is that we are are purchased in the marketplace of sin, but God redeems us. He takes us out of the marketplace He removes us from the location of our sin. The third word that is found in the New Testament, translated redemption, is the idea of to be set free. It is to be released. God, who has, because of our sin, came to redeem us from our sin. And he purchases us. In the slave market of sin, takes us out of the slave market of sin, and then thirdly, he sets us free. And I want us to understand what a blessing it is to understand the redemption that God has purchased. Listen, it is not about us, it is not about what we have done, but it is what God has done, it is is what God has accomplished. It is about magnifying and honoring and and glorifying God, who alone is the author of salvation. He alone is the performer of salvation. He alone is the one who has provided such a redemption. He is the lamb without spot, without blemish. So the redemption that God has purchased. I want you to come with me now back to Galatians chapter 4 if you're not already back there. But I want you to see the the final phrase of verse 5. To redeem those that were under the law, then this final phrase, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The redemption, number four, the redemption that God promised. The redemption that God promised. Paul now is connecting the storyline of Jesus that he has been going through in these two verses. He now connects this this story of Christ to the passage in, in Galatians 4, and to the greater context of the entire book of Galatians. And what Paul is doing is he's making a contrast between what it means to be born as a child and what it means to be born as a son. He's making making that distinction. Now, what I want us to think about, first of all, is that we are in in receiving Christ we are born as a child. We are we are born again. John 1:12 but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the children of God. There is a there is a a, a in the faith reception process we are We are born again as a child of God. Um, the, The first time we are born physically, the second time we are born spiritually. That's the idea of being born again. Paul, however, is taking this another step. We are born as a child, we are in the family of God, but he is going another step, and what he is doing is he, he is saying, not only are you born as a child, but you are adopted as a son. You're adopted as a son. Now, if you go back with me into verses 1 and 2, I just want to just look at, look at the context here. Um, and this has to do with, with the Roman custom of adopting a child out of your own family. So in, in verse 1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from all uh, at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards. Now the, 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 the illustration that Paul is giving us in a in a Roman house, there would be there would be um, in a typical house there would be many slaves. The slaves would have children. You have a wife. You have children. Your children are playing around with their children, and, and it's just you're, you know you're you're the, 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 there is there is not a distinction. Necessarily in a slave's child and the owner of the home's child. Until, verse, verse 2, until the time appointed by the father. In other words, there is a, there is a moment in time when, when the, the owner of the home, now this is a Roman custom. When the owner of the home takes one of his children and makes him his heir, and there is a formal legal proceeding in which that father adopts his own child, he takes his own child and gives him that he gives that child all of the rights and privileges of being his his formal heir. And so that that child now changes stature in the home. Previously he's, you know, he's just one of the one of the kids running around the house. But now he is an heir. He has been adopted. He is the the, the relationship with the father, the owner, is now formalized and set. And so what, what Paul is doing he's he, in 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 giving this uh, this this Roman cultural illustration he's saying there's a difference between being born as a child being physically born as a child and being adopted into this Roman cultural context changes the status Now what Paul is doing is he's giving us an illustration of what what it is like to be in God's family. Because in God's family, we we are born again as a child of God. We are part of the family of God. We can call God our Father. But there is more than just that family relationship. There is also a legal relationship that we have with God the Father. Because not only are we part of his family as a child, but we are we are adopted as a son. Now, I realize we live in a in a world that's everything is kind of gender neutral you know we're, we've, we've we've kind of lost bible translations or even you know they're 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 giving up um, a lot of the male pronouns and 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 frankly. Some of the male pronouns that are used in the Bible are intended to be male and female inclusive. You know, we understand that. But you've got to hold on to this kind of concept because that's, that's, this is Paul's illustration of what happened in the Roman culture. And so being adopted as a son, that's for all believers we are, we are all given that place of privilege and of inheritance. And so he goes on and he says in, 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 in verse 6, And because you are sons, because you have been adopted by God the Father, not just as a child, but you, have given, you are given a legal standing before, before God. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. You're not just like somebody else in the house, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. And so the promise, the promise of this redemption is that we have a, a permanent standing and relationship as an heir of Jesus Christ, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I mean, what a blessing it is that in this redemption, we are. We, we, it's not just having fire insurance. It's not just that we're not going to hell and we're going to heaven. Praise God for that. But it is more than that. Because we are are brought not just into the family of God, but we are brought into this legal standing with God and that we are made part of of the heir of what is Jesus Christ. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Listen, we we are brought into this legal relationship, not just as children, but as sons. Now, I want to encourage you today in the things of the gospel I want to encourage you today in the things that Jesus Christ has provided through his blood to provide redemption. I want us to understand that salvation is, is not something we have done, but it is something, it is, it is everything that God has done. And so I would ask you today are you a believer? because our responsibility to the redemption that God has provided our responsibility is really threefold number 1 is to believe it to receive it to accept it to to acknowledge it by faith and have it become part of our life we are we are to believe it the second responsibility that we have is to live it we are to live the gospel we are to be having the gospel function in and through our lives constantly. The gospel is not just um, something that gains us entrance into this, this relationship. But the gospel is a life-transforming event that, that changes the direction of our lives and, and, and consumes our life. We have a responsibility to live the gospel. Thirdly, we have a responsibility to share the gospel. We who have received this gift, we who have the blessings of redemption, we have an opportunity, yea, we have an obligation to take the gospel to those of our world who have not heard. You know, you don't have to go very far these days to find someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible or know anything about redemption, know anything about Jesus Christ. You don't have to walk very far, do you? Let's let's understand the, the privilege to not only believe it, not only to live it, but to share it. And I hope that is part of your, your goal, part of what you want to accomplish in your life day by day. We, we praise God for our Lord, that salvation is not by works, it's not by something I have done or could do, but it is wholly the gift of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to walk hand in hand with, with uh, the ministry and, and to understand that there is, in Jesus Christ, this great responsibility that we have to share the gospel with those around us. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage us today, strengthen us for your name's sake, Encourage now this church. Lord, we ask that you might open the doors of heaven and pour out on this church blessings that it might not be able to contain. We ask, Lord, that this community and this neighborhood would be reached for the cause of Christ. And we ask, Father, that you to continue to encourage uh, the, the, the process and, and the growth of this church for the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.